Hello and welcome to yet another edition of the Arena Craft Podcast, a show dedicated exclusively to Magic the Gathering Arena. Thanks for joining us again. I'm one of your hosts, Arjuna. We are still in the Covaco Blue waiting room, waiting for the sensei to return. But in the meantime, we have an esteemed guest returning to the show, friend of the podcast, one of the best mono green mages who has ever lived, the Sultan of Smash, the mono green master himself, Rumty. How you doing, man? Hey, Arjuna. I'm doing really good. What an intro. Way to hype me up, man. I, I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> if anyone watching this has not been living under a rock, they probably know all about your exploits on the arena. Here's one thing I want to get off the bat. How many months have you been number one on the arena, would you say? So there was a stretch of times where it where it mattered to me. I was trying to keep a streak alive. I hit number one 13 out of 14 months. But the, I think the achievement that I was more proud of is that I was able to hold number one for 90 out of 100 days straight. Very confident nobody else has held number one for anywhere close to that amount of time. I imagine that there's a handful of people who maybe held it for a whole month or at least, you know, 80 or 90 percent of a month after they got it took it and then held but it's very atypical for someone to hold number one longer than a few days so holding it for that 90 day stretch was like super stressful for me but that's probably the accomplishment i'm most proud of i would venture to guess that it's kind of impossible to really determine this but i think if we were to take out like your messing around games you probably have one of the highest elos of anyone who plays arena i feel like confident in saying that i mean anyway you slice it you're a very very accomplished arena player So I'm really excited to have you on. And today, I've been waiting for it for a really long time. We're just going to go like as deep as we can into mono green. Just try to get you like as many of those little nuggets as we can to help you become a better mono green mage, to help you become a better aggro mage, and to help you just get better at magic in general. So that's what we're going to talk about today. First things first, I just wanted to announce we're doing a giveaway, a Patreon giveaway we got the the result in or rather i picked a winner and so the winner of the commander deck giveaway is going to be jeremy bach congratulations jeremy thanks so much Woo! <laughs> um so yeah reach out to me on discord we'll figure out how to get that to you it's the uh strixhaven is it commander deck thanks so much and um i want to keep giving extra value for the patrons of the podcast y'all have been really fantastic and we haven't necessarily been like super consistent in delivering that extra value and so it's something that i want to work on so this is just a one of many things that we can do to do that so thanks so much to our patrons and of course if you want to become a patron of the show you can do so for as little as 2.99 a month So just look for the link in the show notes or right below this video if you're watching on YouTube. That's pretty much it. So let's jump in and get started. And the first thing that I wanted to do, Rumpty, I just wanted to ask you about your history with magic and get a little bit of a sense of what brought you to where you are today. So how did you first start playing magic? I actually started playing magic with Arena, basically. and a true a true zoomer. Throne wow. of Eldraine was my first set. So I don't know magic pre-Throne of Eldraine, which I know blows a lot of people's minds because <laughs> apparently that was like some sort of landmark change in the way Magic Felter was played ever since. It's like a BC, AD thing. It's like you were just born Darth Vader without ever having to be Anakin Skywalker. That's what that's like. <laughs> that's hilarious. I think what Arena does, though 
is it enables that kind of accelerated learning curve. Because while Aldrain was my first set, I'm relatively confident I probably have more reps than anyone else who isn't like a PT grinder or a routine PT player. All of my friends who have played Magic all of their lives, like I have a number of friends, kitchen tables, commanders, cube drafters, all these different aspects of Magic, but they've been doing it forever um, and very dedicated players. I've definitely surpassed their rep because I play like a few thousand games a set. That just accelerates your learning. It's a short amount of time, but Kushiro, one of my favorite MPL players, did the same thing where he made Magic his job and he played something like 20,000 games in two years. Wizards, actually, they have all the stats and they verified that he has played more games of Arena than anybody else in existence. (laughs) And it grinded him into a PTL invite by winning the Challenger Gauntlet. So reps matter. Oh, absolutely. I'm curious... When did you decide to just install the client and get into it? Like, was it because of your friends or how did you actually start it? I'll shout out my friend, Chris Walter. He might be listening to this. He had me to install install MTGO and I just couldn't dig it. I wanted to dig it. I couldn't dig it. I played a couple games. It didn't grip me. So I put it down. And then I did a cube draft with another one of my friends, Ben. So I was like, okay, I know I love magic. I love how it works. And then when Arena came out and when I had an opportunity to download it and start playing it, I was like, this is exactly how I can engage with magic content. Because one, I wanted to play magic as a kid. In middle school, I was aware of magic. I was interested in magic. I had some acquaintances who played it, but it was always way too expensive. The concept of buying cards, it was a bridge too far. There was just no way I did not not have the means to play magic. Um, so I just never did, even though conceptually I knew I was that kind of nerd. So it wasn't until Arena came along. And in Arena, I'm a free-to-play player. I have not invested any money in Magic whatsoever. And if lifetime, I've I've gained money through my tournament winnings and stuff. I just don't spend money on Magic, and I'm still able to super enjoy it. I suppose when the sum total of wild cards that you're spending are on one color. <laughs> That's fair. But yeah. even with that, I have a full collection since drain and oh, i'm wow. sitting on 100 rare wild cards 30 mythic rare wild cards like i'm ahead of the curve with full collection so yeah i only need the green cards but i still get them all <laughs> i mean I, i'm definitely not trying to short sell your accomplishments on the platform <laughs> and i think something that some people might not know about you rumty is that you're kind of an apex predator gamer in general aren't you i've understood that you're a person who likes to go pretty hard on games and likes to achieve pretty high in games it's the one thing in my life like that i've been able to excel at so much so that i can distinguish myself from like 99 percent of other people and like this goes back to like world of warcraft i was in a, like a top three north american guild i was working like part-time at walmart spending 16 hours a day as, as a mage very few people cleared max 40 which was a big accomplishment like, i don't know if you played world of warcraft or were that involved no. in it like, i was in a world third illidan storm rage kill like, world of warcraft brought that out of me where i was like oh i can be very successful playing this game i scratched my itch of being competitive and being high level competitive that said 
I know that there's a tier of magic competition that I would like to try that I'm still striving towards. I don't want to sit here and gloat too much because I know I'm a B-level magic player and on, on the skill side of it. MPL players, perennial PT players, they definitely are on another tier. I'm basically like farm league compared to those folks. But in the arena world of the arena client, I do feel that my success is remarkable. I think that you can be like, you know, one of the most accomplished arena players and still have a lot to improve on. And I think that's one of the things that makes magic so cool. You can just keep getting better at it. When did you pull that sword out of the stone and be like mono green? That's me. That's who I am. Yeah, I actually have a narrative for this is that it scavenging ooze is the reason. It's a story of Uro and scavenging ooze. My bias led me towards Rakdos. So I was like a Rakdos sack player pretty heavily. And then when Uro came into the meta and that gain three life, make a 6-6 six, six potty, draw a card, like everything that it did, it just blanked all of the ways I like to play the game. I liked pinging face. I liked draining. I liked doing those types of things. And Uro just said, no, you can't do that anymore. And then so they spoiled scavenging ooze. I didn't know it was even a reprint. I thought it was a new card up until just now. But yeah, so at M21, Scavenging Ooze was printed. And when they announced it being printed, I was like, that's the card that kills Uro. It's the best answer to Uro, bar none. It's the only thing that actually trades for it and leaves value on the board. Because if you eat it out of the graveyard and grow a two-drop that can continue to grow and continue to gain value, it's the only way to one-for-one that card. In M21, they also printed Primal Might. And I was like primal might i think i was one of the early adopters and one of the people earliest to recognize the power of primal might um so i put four scavenging goose and four primal might in my deck and then i just built a green shell around those cards when an m21 actually coincided with a season reset it was like m21 dropped eight hours later the ladder resets or whatever it was like bang bang Prior to that, I had been Mythic, but I think the highest Mythic I had ever been was 16. But I was typically in between 200 and 800 level Mythic player, and I couldn't really push past that month after month. But Ooze dropped, M21 dropped. I proceeded to like play nonstop for like two or three days. I went 74 and 4, and I held number one for 12 days straight off the back of those cards. I figured out M21 really quick behind Ooze and Primal Might. That's still today the best I've ever done in Magic. <laughs> And that just set the hooks of like, okay, yeah, mono green, I love it. Something clicked with me and I haven't looked back and I've really only played green since outside of like reasons, like competitive circuits have in historic sometimes if combo control is the strongest thing happening, mono green can't interact with that very well. So I played other decks in like PTQs for SCG for historic but yeah, other yeah. than that, it's green. Green all the way. When you said that you came to the game with the release of Eldraine, it didn't surprise me that you became a mono green mage because <laughs> I remember when Eldraine hit, that was when I became a mono green mage. They Love just struck like, and henge? Yep. Love struck, <laughs> henge, Yorvo. I mean, they were really pushing it. It was clear that they were pushing that as an archetype, you know, and they printed some other cards like Barkhide Troll and stuff before that. Vivian Aqua Ranger, I think. That was maybe M20. Um, it was around during Eldraine. I don't know if it came out for Eldraine, but it definitely, because I played a lot. Viv 4 is my favorite Planeswalker. So I've got it as the background here on my <laughs> yeah, video that. version of the podcast. And yeah, the queen of mono green, I mean, she really hit hard. So we had some cards that were already pushing us in that direction, but I feel like it was the release of Eldraine that really put mono green on the map as far as like something that you could do in standard with success. By the time you no know, M21 came around, it was like really the cavalry was arriving for the archetype and you were really filling out 
some of the missing pieces, right? Like graveyard interaction. It really was a rich time for the archetype. It's kind of cool to hear, you know, I think that you and I were probably really getting into mono green around the same time. You probably shot way past me in terms of achievement. That's something that we share for people who don't maybe haven't listened to this podcast since the beginning, Mono Green was actually the first deck that I became known for. It was the first underdog deck that I was championing on the podcast. And I was like, no, really, guys, this is going to go the distance. You're one of the people who vindicated me. So I'll, I'll forever be grateful for that. And it was all the way up until I started holding number one consistently with it. Mono Green did have that underdog feeling. And I have a distinct memory of toying around with Green prior to Ood. And one of my first touches with content creation and fame was that I built a Mono Green deck and I did pretty well with it. Gotten into like the top 200 Mythic and I had a really good win rate. I was watching Crokey's and he was building a green deck or he had said something along the lines of, I think green might be well positioned. I want to build a green deck. Does anybody have a list I could start with or something? And I was like, yeah, I have a list. And I told him my record, whatever it was at the time. And he was like, all right, well, send me a link. And so I sent him a link and he loaded it up. That was like such a cool moment for me because at that point I was like definitely not known. I hadn't streamed i had no amount of success nobody knew my name the first thing he did was like change 12 cards i was like dude you're not even playing the deck i, I gave you whatsoever <laughs> and the 12 cards that he changed like four of them i agreed with eight of them i was like personally offended you've really killed key concepts of what this deck's game plan is plugging it in for typically generally powerful cards i could see why why one would say like and that that's a thing that crokies will do to great success is he's drawn to powerful cards and he wants to fill every slot of his deck with powerful cards i don't want to speak in platitudes especially because i'm not up to i am into powerful game plans and powerful like synergies every card has to move you in a direction of what it is that you're doing to win that game and take advantage of every piece of mana that you spend, right? I actually love that you brought that up because it's one of the core concepts that we've taught before on this podcast is that good plans beat good cards. Whenever we're talking about like really the more competitive and the deeper layers of magic, CGB and I are often talking about how you don't build your deck to beat cards, you build your deck to beat plans. So I love that you're bringing this up. And I think it is a trap that it's easy to fall into with mono green. Frankly, what it indicates to me is that they've given us enough cards where we actually have a choice. So first things Big first, time. that's really cool. You know, I felt like, for example, Mono Red has been a deck in standard forever on Arena. And I have rarely felt like that deck, it's had options. And maybe sometimes there were like two different builds you could do. But I feel like Mono Green has just had such a range of cards. To It's almost like anyone can brew their own Mono Green, have some unique aspects to it. So I think that that's really cool. It's one of the things that fascinated me was like watching your rise alongside Rint, who was like another Mono mm -hmm. Green hero of mine, and comparing yes. your lists. And your lists were always different. I have so much respect for Rint. And I think what's funny is that when I watch Rint, I recognize weaknesses in my own game. Maybe not weaknesses, but stylistic differences that feel like weaknesses. I think Rint is stronger than me in a lot of dynamics of playing mono green, and that's why our lists look different. We have different preferences on how to play it. Like Rint is very good at 
playing longer games. I was going to comment, when I've compared your deck lists, I've always thought that Rint's lists were aiming to go longer, whereas yours were aiming to end the game quicker. So I almost think of him as more of like a mid-range mono-green player. Yeah, he definitely is more comfortable in the mid-range control side, and I'm more comfortable in the aggro side as our biases. And not to say that Rint isn't a brilliant aggro player. He absolutely can put that hat on when it's the best thing to be doing. And that's kind of what we both will do. And sometimes, very rarely, we've switched where I end up playing a more mid-rangey deck and he's on a more aggressive deck because for whatever, we just have a read on the meta that's a little bit different based on Mm -hmm. what we're running into. It's wild to me that you know, we can be monogreen specialists with hundreds of reps playing completely different lists with almost identical results. That's a really cool thing. And I have a lot of respect for Rant. Let's get into some of the specifics here. I thought for the purposes of this episode, it would be cool to focus our discussion around two different lists of yours that are I've pulled up an alchemy list that you've been playing. And also, you know, we were talking before the show started and you were telling me that you've been really enjoying playing historic this last Mm -hmm. week. Is there a list that you're like excited to start? Do you want to talk about historic first? Yeah, let's start with historic then because then there's no topical reason to be in alchemy because the qualifier will be over. Okay, there you go. (laughs) By the time you listen to this, you don't care about alchemy as much right now. (laughs) (laughs) And Historic has really gripped me this week. I've played a lot of Historic. God, I'm going to have to admit something that's just a little bit shameful. I took Mono Green to 17, destroying with it, but I could not beat Heliod Combo. That deck just blanked me. I'll bring it up now just in in general terms, but I can get into the details of it. I splashed red to bring in (laughs) Ferocidon. I mean, that is a heck of a magic card. I had to do it. With the Ferocidon version, I pushed to number two, and I got seven wins at number two. Whoever number one is right now, they've sprinted ahead of it. They're way out there, so I didn't catch them. Green didn't have an answer, and I felt like Heliod combo was enough of the meta that I would never get the win rate necessary or the streak necessary to actually achieve number one without coming up with a way to let me win at least half my games against Heliod Combo. So I thought of a lot of different ways. I kept the same shell literally from my mono green stompy list. I replaced four cards. I took out two old growth trolls and turned them into Ferocidons. And I removed two blizzard brawls and turned them into flame blessed bolts. And then I just put in 12 dual lands. I had to get rid of the brawls because if you're going into 12 dual lands, you can't yeah, be on can't snow any longer. So that's the trade-off. You have to get off of snow, so you have to get rid of brawls. And that's a big loss. Blizzard Brawl is, is such a strong removal. There's nothing else like it. It's the best fight spell out of Primal. I'm still running four Primals. This was interesting to me because I was thinking about Mono Green and Historic. This is my personal opinion, and maybe I haven't played enough Historic lately, but I almost feel like you have less options options in historic for mono green than you do in like standard or alchemy if you want to be truly competitive maybe all it means is that when i look at your list i agree with your build when i think about building a mono green deck in historic i'm like okay well it has to be a collected company deck you know you have to run lanoir elves right you have to run ooze werewolf pack leader is your best two drop the list of playable three drops in my opinion is pretty short but it seems like maybe you don't agree with me on this you're right in that the powerful cards are so powerful that you do gravitate towards them. Play and actually like 
Coco, to me, isn't a must-include. It took me a long time to admit that I should be playing Coco in the current meta. Typically, I don't play Coco Green because I really like Questing Beast. I really like shifting Ceratops as a tech option. There's a lot of really good strong 4-drops that I want to play, and sometimes I just don't want to have the density of free drops that actually makes Coco consistent enough to be strong. But in this current meta... Coco is where you need to be, and it's because the three drops just line up so well right now. Steel Leaf Champion is what gave me the confidence to say, I think green is good in Historic right now. It's so So many of the meta decks are two power creatures. The fact that you can just attack over a cat with it is pretty amazing, right? Yeah, Skyclave Apparition, a Brutal Cathar, a Thalia. There's just so many cards. A lot of the angels in the life game deck. A lot of the angels, they have two power until you gain all that life. If you're just clocking them every turn and they can't block you, you're keeping them off of that and you're keeping your steel leaf champion kind of relevant that's exactly it you have to be aggressive you have to get that damage in so that they can't have their righteous valkyrie flip at 27 life that plan is good enough against angels it's not good enough against heliod combo they're just too fast and they are yeah that asshole i guess (laughs) yeah i hate that card man the the world's best of johnny's pride mate yeah exactly it gets out of control too fast you very quickly go into a position where you can no longer attack and playing your own creatures grows their creatures so you can't even like just build a board and then they fly over the top of you and it's untenable so the only way for a creature deck food deals with it by being in black and having a huge removal package. Meat Hook Massacre and Fatal Pushes, Infernal Grasp is popular. They can go up to like eight to 10 spot removals and then four sweeps, and that's enough. Other creature decks can't do that. You don't have that. Sometimes your fight spells aren't enough. You have to come up with something different. And that's why I went to red. And if you're looking at the historic deck I built, like I said, all I did is put in two Ferocidons in the main. In game one, it's an auto win against Heliod. You yep. play a Ferocidon and they typically scoop. If they can't gain life, it's over. Rampaging Ferocidon never stopped being a good card. It has always been like a powerhouse in historic, and I'm glad to hear it's still putting in good work. There is a ton of drawbacks, and I'm sad that I have to play it. Like, it doesn't help us cast Henge. It does ping our own face in other matchups. If Heliod combo didn't exist, I would definitely be on the mono green. I imagine the Ferocidon can maybe put you in a dangerous spot against like Phoenix decks or something, right? Where like taking exactly. a little extra damage over the course of the game is enough to lose you the game. Exactly. Because yeah. the way we beat Phoenix is that we get three different five power creatures hitting them in the face and winning the game in one turn. That incidental damage matters a lot more to us than it does to them because they find a lot of different ways to lethal you with exact damage. Whereas we're just waiting for that one critical turn and that ping damage doesn't matter so much. There's a real cost to it and I wish I didn't have to do it. I imagine there's turns where your opponent fading hopes you and then you're like, I don't know if I can afford to play this creature out again. Look at that graveyard and you're like, wow, I could just be dead to Phoenix next turn or whatever. Luckily, our matchup with Phoenix is pretty good because we run Ooze as four of in the main, which is a pretty strong card there. Of course, Phoenix, and this is the power of Phoenix, they have their god draw where they can like turn five, kill you in the air, put three Phoenixes down off the, off of three mana on turn three, and you're just yeah. like, well, okay, we, we don't actually outpace that. But outside of those types of games, which are rare, 
we just play stronger creatures and we attack better. I've done pretty well in the Phoenix matchup. That's the cool. green version, especially but the gruel version. The red splash version is weaker, and that's mm-hmm. kind of the thing. The red splash version is weaker against the field, but it's so strong against against that one deck. Before we get ahead of ourselves, I'm just going to read down this deck list, and then we can talk about some of the other choices that went into it. I'll read off the creatures first. We've got four Llanowar elves, four scavenging ooze, four werewolf pack leader. And then a lot of three drops. We have four Lovestruck Beasts, two Ronus the Indomitable, four Kazandu Mammoth, two Old Growth Troll, and four Steel Leaf Champion. So those are our main deck creatures here. And then um, for non-creature spells, obviously it's a company deck, so we have few of them. We have two Blizzard Brawls, four Primal Mites, three Collected Company, three Great Henges, and 20 snow-covered forests. I'm sure that a lot of thought has gone into this list. I'd be interested to just hear you give like a general rundown of how you decided to play Collected Company, the choices that kind of came from that. So what I'll call this first is a Henge deck. I am very familiar with building Henge decks. I've probably cast the Great Henge more than any other person alive. Henge is such a powerful card. It does so much for you, but there's a structure that is necessary for Henge to be worth your time. And that structure is five power, three drops is a big part of it, but then also creature density. Like a heuristic that I landed on a long time ago is Henge is strongest when you have around 27 creatures that can proc that card draw. And that means that just slightly under half of your draws, and you'll find yourself in top deck mode with Henge a lot, and I want to be finding a creature half of the time. And sometimes, like, psychologically, it doesn't feel like that. Everybody who's played a lot of hench decks is aware of land, land, land. And your thought is, if I just hit a creature, I would draw a card with it, and da 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 It's been a while. Is Henge a cast or an ETB trigger? Um, it's an ETB contra? trigger. So if, so if you slam Collected Company with the Henge down, you actually draw two. If you hit yes. two creatures, right? Yes, you do. Okay, that's pretty clean. Um, that's the strongest thing. So here's the thing about game plans. is like one thing that you want to imagine is what's the strongest thing you can do? In this deck, the strongest thing you can do is turn one land at War Elves, turn two either Steel Leaf or Ronus or Lovestruck or In a Pinch Mammoth, turn three Henge, Henge right? into a two drop yeah. or Henge into a fight spell to remove something. Those are really powerful things. And this deck maximizes on that potentiality by having 14 different five power three drops. Those games that you get Llanowar Elves, you're almost always getting that three drop. And then if you happen to have Henge, that's almost a one game, especially if you're on the play, especially if they don't interact. That's the Henge thing. And I'm light on two drops, but you have to have them. Pack Leader and Ooze as eight, it's a pretty good number. In my mind, I feel like those are probably the two strongest green two drops in the format. Is there anything else that is fighting for that position? In Mono Green Stompy, no. Interestingly, I started with Barkhide Troll over mm. Pack Leaders mm-hmm. because of Phoenix and all the cheap interaction. I really valued 
being able to give something hexproof to fight off of. And I still feel like there is an argument. If Phoenix was a higher portion of the meta, if Fading Hopes or these cheap, cheap bounce spells or what have you were a higher portion of the meta, I would probably be running Barkai Trolls over the pack leaders because I think that's more likely to be relevant than the card draw that you may Mm. get. If you're drawing with a bunch of pack leaders with this deck, you just kind of don't need that. Mm. You have your Henge and you have your Cocos for card advantage. The pack leaders attacking and drawing you a card will win you some games, but not a ton. If you're attacking with a pack leader that is triggering pack tactics, you're in a really good spot already. The card draw just snowballs you further, which is great, and I'm not downplaying how strong that is and how strong it is conceptually to force your opponent to not allow you to do that because it removes the option of them ignoring the threat. That's the most important thing. Every card that you pick and that you choose to put in needs to be something that can't be ignored. In the creature matchups, like going back to standard, green always did well against the gruel decks and the green decks that insist on running like Jespera Sentinel or Lotus Cobra or this suite of mana dorks that don't do anything on their own and they can safely be ignored and then you just kill their threats that they actually played, and then our threat density is higher. This list runs 26 creatures. 22 of them can win the game on their own if they're not killed or answered. They're strong enough attackers. They're strong enough that they can't be ignored. And that threat density is something that Mono Green can do better than anything else. Going back to the concept of building a henge deck, 27 creatures, 24 lands at a minimum, but with the Mammoth, you, I was able to go typically run 27 creatures, 27 lands, your Mammoths are, are filling two slots. And then that leaves you enough room for typically six removals, three henges. So these are numbers that you want to hit, and that's just the structure of a henge deck that gives you the most consistent way to exploit the power of these cards. So jumping into Historic and saying, I'm going to play a three henge deck, I already knew the number of creatures I was looking for, the number of lands I was looking for, the number of removal spells I was looking for. It built itself after that, just off the experience of it. I see people building henge decks I used to all the time, and then running like 20 creatures. That's painful. Yeah, well, you can't do it. <laughs> and one of the things I like about this list is that you're playing the two most powerful green creature deck cards in Historic, in my opinion, which are Collected Company and Henge. Mm-hmm. And the great thing is that the rest of the deck butters both sides of that equation. Your creatures are good with the henge and they're good with the company. I feel like your creature suite is perfectly synergizing with these cards, which are kind of your top end cards. Another thing I like about it is that because you're playing all of these high impact three drops, you're also not playing, yeah, like a bunch of garbagey, like one and two drop creatures. So you're less likely to hit them off of collected company as well. You've kind of reached the right balance here. Like I think you've covered just enough angles while keeping the power really focused in what the most powerful cards actually are. And that's just serendipitous that Henge and Coco have the same payoff structure, I guess. The things that make Henge good are the same things that make Coco good. So being able to run both, then having six copies of cards that can put you so far ahead that your opponent can't recover means that you're doing that plan a lot. One thing I used to do all the time, I haven't been doing it lately since I've developed enough deck building heuristics, is I use Hyper Geometric Calculator. I know a lot of people are probably familiar with, but a lot of people aren't. And then I would do like, okay, how often am I going to be able to cast a turn for a company or a turn for a hench? Here, let me plug it in real quick. Population size of 60, six 
successes in the population. By turn four, you're looking at 11 cards, and we want at least one of them. That means that 72% of games, we will have a Coco or a Henge in our hand on turn four. Of course, we're going to need the land to fall right and the three drop to be there. But the fact that we're running 14 three drops, that's never going to be the thing that holds you back. <laughs> so like, I would say I'm cocoing or hinging probably 60% of my games on turn four. That's a 60% win rate right there, more or less. <laughs> the effects are that strong that that's basically what that boils down to. Those are games that you pick up because of the, how powerful that plan and how consistently you can execute it. And then your win rate goes up from there based on how many games you can win when you don't get to do that. Maybe 30% of the 40% remaining game, I win even when I don't get to turn for a Coco or a Henge. That puts me at 70% win rate, which is world class. What I love about this deck is that because it's mono green and because of the way the curve is structured, it's a very consistent beatdown deck. And then I think about it kind of like a low-key creature combo deck. You're running creature combos that aren't as powerful as like the Heliod combo, for example, but they're still very strong. Collected Company is basically just like a one-card combo. Like as long as you hit good stuff by itself, it's strong enough to win a lot of games. And it's the same thing with Henge is like... Henge on the field plus any number of creatures in the hand is a combo. That's kind of how I think about this deck. It's like a B-level combo deck with like an A-level beatdown plan. And I like that adds up really nicely. A deck like this is very powerful in a specific meta. And the current historic meta is there. Combo decks are strong, but not combo control. Combo control is the bane of Mono Green Stompy's existence. <laughs> we can't interact with it. Sells out on stopping creatures from hitting them in the nose. They don't care what their life total is as long as they're alive on the turn they go off. Exactly. And that's why like, I wasn't a fan of the historic format for a long time. There always seemed to be a combo control deck that was tier zero or tier one, and I couldn't play the games the way I like to play it. I'm guessing you didn't like those indomitable creativity decks very much. <laughs> and I still don't. When you get double Sarah's angels on the board off it, I'm just like, okay, yeah, good job. It's over. I don't begrudge people who enjoy playing those decks. Find your joy. I'm not yucking your yum. But I will also say that my joy is in playing on the axis of combat damage. The combat step is where I enjoy magic. So combo control decks that like make the combat step irrelevant, it's not fun for me. I Q and do you. You did what you wanted to do. You had a good game. We'll go next. I'm not having fun. You're having fun. That's fine. That's magic sometimes because I recognize I'm doing that to people too, especially as an aggro player. Like there's some control mages that don't want to have to build a deck to account for strong one, two, and three drops and losing the game on turn five because I just curved elf into steel leaf into steel leaf into coke. That's a thing that I enjoy doing. And there's certain types of mages that hate that play style. I get to have fun and they don't when we match up. So I'll accept being on the other end of that when the Sarah Angels hit the board or what have you. But again, then I just seek out the formats where I'm more likely to have my playstyle rewarded. Typically, that hasn't been historic, but right now it is. There isn't a really good combo control deck that's tier one, that, that's a significant portion of the meta. We can just do a lot of things to beat out all these cat oven decks and all these other creature decks were the best creatures in the format. How's your Yorian inspiring captain matchup? I think this version, the the one that we're looking at right now, had a harder time than my gruel version. Uh, because in my sideboard, 
I run three fries. Just some of that red removal that is a lot more flexible than our fight spells and is at instant speed. The green version, it's not favored. It's maybe 30-70 unfavored against the, I'll call it Yorian Blink. But uh, the Gruel version probably flips that on its head. Because all you have to do is hold your instant speed for removal for their soul menders and their blink targets. So when they blink something, you kill it, you've two for one them, and you've shut off their engine. And so it's pretty easy to cripple them and then just win. The green version is rough because our removal is an instant speed. But if you have a critical mass of instant speed removal, which I think I get up to eight instant speed removals in the grill version post-board, that's enough to win. Like I said, I haven't really been in the historic meta much lately, but that's my impression, right? Is that you've got the food decks, you've got the Phoenix decks, you've got these Yarian Blink decks, you've got the Heliod combo decks. I'm imagining control is still a thing as well. Azorius Lotus is oh, just as popular right. as those. Okay. And that's a deck that tilts me. I do fine against it, but it tilts me when they win because I just feel like it's. I don't have any like math to back this up, but when they like turn one land, turn two Lotus into Stifle, turn three like Proctor into Lotus into Teferi five. I'm just like, come on, man, that, you're a magical Christmas <laughs> Disneyland here and I'm going to lose, but I shouldn't ever lose to you. <laughs> Dude, you know what, man? I was trying to do the Lotus Stifle thing on the front lines of people who wanted to make that a thing. I was playing these like Kiara decks with Lotus Field doing all the stuff and I can testify to the fact that like it's not a consistent thing. You think that just because you're playing a bunch of Lotus and stifles and stuff you're gonna have it all the time i really struggle to pull it off a lot of the time maybe it's just a case of i don't have the watsy in turn at my back or whatever i don't know because obviously i only play the green side of the matchup and i don't know the rest but i think it comes down to other good things to do with your stifle and i think in the meta there might be right now i can imagine like stopping food from drawing a card or there's a lot of things where it's not dead you could stifle um, a phoenix activation, I suppose. Like yeah. little things, not great. You don't want to be doing that, but it's not a blank. Whereas mm-hmm. in previous metas, I think it was blank. If you weren't stifling your lotus field, it wasn't doing anything relevant. It was representing like the value of like 0.2 of a card, right? Yeah. Whereas now, I feel in this meta, maybe it's like 0.8 of a card, which is yeah. maybe good enough. I mean, yeah. obviously, it's a popular deck. Alf, Matt, I don't know how to say his name. He's been playing the Stifle Lotus combo in top five Mythic this month. The whole time on that. It is working for some folks. They figured it out. <laughs> so that deck's been around for a while in Historic. It, was it just a meta thing that pushed it over? Or like, did they get some new cards in Alchemy? Or like, what happened? I have no idea. But I've been playing Historic Mono Green this past week. I know it's a deck now, but I can't really opine on the history of it. Let's recap this. Like, you decided to be playing Mono Green in Historic for this particular period of time because you identified that it was a meta game game somewhat friendly to what you were trying to do i just want to hear a few more like because i want to shift over to the alchemy soon but i just Mm -hmm. want to get a few more of your kind of meta takes on like why would i decide to sleeve up a mono green deck in this format was it just that you perceived that the matchups would be good what else kind of egged you on to do it i just looked at all of the top decks and realized that 
none of them could block my creatures. Okay. <laughs> if you want to make it as simple as you can, if I can attack and they either have to let me hit them in the face or chump, I'm winning. Yeah, you're And winning. that's the concept of go tall aggro. I'm going to stick a creature that you can't efficiently deal with, so you either let it deal its damage or you inefficiently block until hopefully you can deal with it in another way late game. And that's just an awful place to be as on the other side of that table from the green deck. Food? Okay, so they got their cat oven, but we have ways we can shut that off. We have the Fort Ooze. We have the Steel Leaf Champion. We have Ronus that gives Trample. Trample we have Ogletroth that has Trample. Even our removal can complicate that for them. It doesn't feel great to remove a cat into an oven, but you can often do it to win the game, shut down their combo because they don't have access to food anymore, and they have to do their oven and then block with their cat, and now their cat's stranded in their graveyard like there's a lot of play patterns you can present that are enough to win you the game a lot of people are like they have this conception of big creatures can't beat cat oven combo because they've the psychological impact of being in that position of say having a love struck beast that they perpetually chump block feels so bad and it puts that imprint in your brain of saying i can't win i'm so disadvantaged but the thing is like there's so many ways to defeat that and make that a rare occurrence that uh, you can still be very favored in the matchup, even though, yes, they can do this thing that turns off a part of your primary game plan. Then outside of food, it's like the humans, it's the same situation. Like what are, They have three threes. They have two ones. They have yep. one ones. They have one twos. They have what's like the biggest creature they have. Is a 3 3. Unless they're like going off with Athalia's lieutenant or something. Which hopefully, like, our removal package or, or we're faster than that actually, like, developing. You're forcing them to grow before your turn two five power creature forces them to start chumping. A lot of the games, you're attacking with the Steel Leaf on turn three. And what do they have? Nah, it's just a good place to be. And that's where this, where the meta sits right now. And same like Phoenix operates the same way. Nothing can block a Steel Leaf, an Old Growth, a Ronus, a Mammoth with a Land Proc, or a Lovestruck Beast. And we're running 16 of those. It's a good place to be. Now, on the other hand, like I said, and combo control doesn't exist. If combo control existed, you can't play green. I like that because I feel like some people probably just feel like you play mono green regardless. And I think to a certain extent you probably do. But this was a case where you specifically identified a meta game that maybe you're not playing every day in a format you're not playing every day. And you're like, this is my time to strike. And I wish I would have figured this out sooner because I wish I would have tried this deck for the PT. Mm -hmm. I did not day two the PT. I went... Oh, and three in historic and three and one in standard. And I was so confident in my standard deck. I had the reps. I knew the meta. I was dialed in on the standard side of the house. I was like, I feel tournament ready on the historic side. I played Golgari food. I had had some success with food decks in the past and I'd had success with Soulfly in the past, but I didn't have that aha moment in time to be like, wait, there's no tainted pack combo. Creativity exists, but it's not going to be popular. Like Arnie ran creativity of maybe 8% of the field or something. So it did, it was there, but I just didn't have a grasp on the historic meta 
enough to be confident in making this call. So I just went with what I thought was the most powerful deck, which was Gold Guard Food, which I was right about, but my version wasn't the best version. And I obviously wasn't the best pilot. And I just blanked uh, on Historic. Had I picked up one game, I would have day twoed. I think that had I played this deck in the PT, I would have made day two. And I, I, I feel like I could have went far with it. But we'll never know. Maybe yeah. this is just a reminder to your future self that you need to be rocking mono green and historic more often. I need to at least try it. I didn't even try yeah. it. Part of that is maybe because I locked in on the standard and I did all my standard reps and then I joined a testing team that was awesome. I joined uh, Two Duck Cubed, Defour, oh, nice. and Florida Mun. It was like currently the best arena limited players in the world. And then me, a mono green constructed monkey, uh, just kind of being like, hey, guys, can I hang out with you? It was an excellent experience. I highly recommend if anybody ever manages to qualify for a PT to find a team. I almost didn't. It just serendipitously lined up that Carl, 2.cube, had sent out a tweet that I responded to. And he's like, well, we're doing it. Da, 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 da. It was an amazing experience to be on a team. And just test with them and test purposefully, joke around and just all of us be in this shared position of really wanting to do well and really wanting to help each other do well and really trying to solve these same problems together. I think that to me is the PT experience more so than the tournament itself. I, I didn't realize that before. I just love how you're pairing up with these people who likely just like they're grinding limited and they're constantly qualifying for the qualifier. And then they're all like, all right, well, we got to play constructed now. So here but we go. But they're like, they are so big brain. Carl and DeFore both day twoed. Carl went pretty far in day two. DeFore had a rough day two. Being able to witness their brains in action was like humbling mm. and cool. Carl with his analytical skills. He's a data analyst for life insurance companies. Oh, okay. Real right. world life job. So like, yeah. he is like king spreadsheet nerd. He just lives with stats and data and he can just break it down card by card. Like really one of the more vocal, more involved people in the 17 lands initiative. I don't want to overstep that because I know there's a lot of other credit to go around with 17 lands, which is a great tool. But then like the forest on a whole other level of understanding this game, like he can just pick up a pile of cards and win with it. He was just like, you know what? I think Jund has a lot of good cards. And he just threw 60 good Jund cards together and took it to like rank 10. Ultimately decided it wasn't a good deck for specific reasons. But I watched him just throw a card, like picked three colors to say, these are three good colors, I think. And then just threw 60 cards together on a whim, having played zero reps with them. And then was just as successful as I am with 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 reps with green, right? It's just like incredible how good they were so it's cool to be a part of that team so yeah they're limited specialists and they didn't have constructed reps but the speed with which they became competent was amazing i don't have a dog in the fight of like which is the hottest magic format or like who the most skilled players are but i can tell you that from my years of playing magic i don't have the depth but i have a lot of breadth of playing magic over different periods of my life all of the hardest game decisions i've ever been faced with in my life were in limited games and i actually think the the limited skill set by definition prepares you to evaluate new meta games and prepares you to quickly evaluate and also to be able to play with decks you never played before right like that's what limited is that's the Mm skill set the other thing about limited is that trains you on the fundamentals of magic in a way that no other format does so like in every game of limited you're thinking about combat 
You're thinking about racing, you're thinking about who's the beatdown, you're thinking about role assignment. You have to assess what cards your opponent might have. Deck building, every single time you play limited, you have to build a deck. I feel like it really demands that you master, if you're going to be a good limited player, you have to master like basically every aspect of Magic. All that spot on, and I agree with everything you just said, and I think that's a really insightful take. This was a topic that came up with uh, Two Duck Cube. Again, I hope I don't misrepresent his hypothesis. Limited is much more complex to get into and to excel at. If you want to be in the top 20%, where like you're better than 80% of the field, it's tougher to get better than 80% of the field in Limited than it is in Constructed. Hmm. But then he went further to say he feels like it's tougher to be in the top 1% of the Got Constructed it. field yeah. than it is to be in the top 1% of the limited field. There's complexity in deck building, in meta analysis, in constructed at the at the world championship level, at the PT level that is more difficult to grapple with or define or completely understand with confidence than in the limited set because of lots of reasons. I think I can kind of agree with that. Where you talked about is mastering fundamentals, that dovetails or lines up. Mastering the fundamentals is going to make you a stronger player than the vast majority of players, but mastering the fundamentals isn't enough to make you a world-class player. Exactly. Jeunesse Sequa, there's a certain thing that has to happen that if we could define it, we could do it. That's really cool to get that perspective from clearly an absolute badass in the game. Are we ready to spend a little bit of time talking about alchemy here? Yeah, for sure. I pulled up this best of three alchemy list that you've put in a lot of reps with recently, it looks like. I'm just going to read off this list and then we can talk about it. This list is a very, very different idea, very different concept than what you were doing in Historic, of course. Kicking it off with four Blizzard Brawls here. We have two Snakeskin Veils. We have four Tenacious Pops, definitely a card I want to discuss with you. Uh, we have two Ranger Class, which I'm sure a lot of mono green mages would raise their eyebrows at only two. We have three Sculptors of Winter, four Werewolf Pack Leaders, four Grizzled Huntmaster, clearly a card you're high on, uh, four Kazandu Mammoth, four Old Growth Trolls, four lupine harbingers two ulvenwald oddities 23 lands 20 forests one layer of the hydra two faceless havens 27 if you count flipping mammoth it's actually kind of funny how we were talking about how you like to skew low curve aggressive because i think of this as being like one of the more mid-game strong lists i've seen you play in a while but maybe i'm just like misapprehending um, the power of the deck I don't think it's wrong, but it's interesting to me because like I'm coming from a Henge world, right? Where Henge is automatically gives you late game power just by virtue of what it does. But since we don't have Henge as an option anymore. I think Grizzled Huntmaster, Huntmaster was yep. the one because on the creature side of it, it's a fairly weak card, right? And so the value of the card is what it allows you to set up for the next turns. Or maybe in the late game, you top deck it and you immediately slam something from your sideboard, right? But I think of Huntmaster as being the kind of card that gives you a mid game or a late game, and also the kind of card that gives you the versatility that you're going to need in a longer game as well. The way the games play out, Huntmaster is almost always turn a pup or a sculptor or a pack leader or a mammoth into an Uvenwald oddity. 
probably 80 or 90% of the times that you are actually coming out of your sideboard, you're just getting a 4-4 Haster, so because that's the deck's plan. Either you're using it as a finisher, or you're using it to set you up for that turn 4 if you didn't have it in your opening hand. This deck, the 4-4 Haster is the plan, and that's a really hard thing for the Alchemy meta to deal with. We have six of them in the main deck, and then we have four quasi-ones represented through Huntmaster. The fun of this deck for me is playing Oddity, Oddity, Harbinger, Oddity, turn four, five, six, seven. Once yeah. you get three or four mana, if you have Sculptor, it's just you slam a 4-4 four, four Haster, send it to the face and say, okay, you dealt with that one, but can you deal with my next one? Can you deal with my next one? And eventually they can't deal with one and you win with it. So that's the game plan of it, where I say, like, this is actually a fairly aggressive deck. Mm. But it does have that piece in the pocket where in the sideboard it has Averbrook Caretaker, Vorinclex, Toski, and Hollowhenge Wrangler which Hollowhenge gives you a lot of staying power exactly it, yeah. it's for those games that you want to stop at five mana and then just make a bunch of five fives because your opponent is another creature deck that can't fly or you can deal with their flyers or what have you and you just want to gum up the board go go big go wide and eventually you're just going to win over overwhelming numbers because they draw lands and you don't it's a similar function to blood you get to stop your curve your lands drops whenever you want and that's why blood is so strong and limited is you get to say okay maybe i'm playing olivia a really strong six drop so i have to go to six mana right but then I never have to play another land after that. Every land after that is going to be action instead. That's what Hollowhenge Wrangler does. It's kind of eerie how identical that is. You just stop at five. You say, I'll never need more than five mana. So <laughs> so here we go. One of the reasons I was commenting that this doesn't feel the most aggro deck, I've watched you play mono green decks that had like eight attacking one drops in them. You're not playing the two one one drop. There are some other kind of like cheap aggressive creature choices you could have made that you're not making in this list. Why did you decide that I would rather just have a bunch of hasty 4-4 tramplers, which is that's like kind of a chonky game plan. That's almost more of like a dragon game plan and less of a small creature aggro deck. That's actually pretty fair, although like I'm not running as many low power two drops or what have you, because all of my creatures can become good through Ranger Class of, but which you noted I'm only playing two of. The concept of can I attack? Uh two one for one is aggressive, but if there are a lot of three health creatures in the meta, it ends up being dead. I'll talk about the concept of mono green is almost always a quantity deck. PVDDR has an excellent article about his five heuristics for magic. I don't know if you're familiar with that, but it's my favorite of all of his articles. Uh, I may have read it a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, got you. One of his heuristics is determining whether your deck is a quantity deck or a quality deck. Mm. And he brings it up to, to describe when you should be mulliganing or not mulliganing. So the difference between those decks is a quantity deck is all of my cards do largely the same thing. I just want to cast as many of them as I can as quickly as I can. A quality deck is I have some very powerful cards and then I have a bunch of cards that either enable them or do something else that's important to my plan. For instance, Combo controls are typically quality decks where you want to find your creativity because if you cast your creativity, you win the game. So you will mull those more often. 
looking for that. Auras, Azorius Auras in Historic is a classic quality deck. You're looking for your core spirit dancers, your SRAM artificers. So you're going to mull aggressively, even down to four sometimes, to make sure you get those cards that are really important. This deck is a quantity deck. All of our cards are overstatted creatures for their place on the curve, and they all do the same thing. I don't care whether I have an oddity or a harbinger or a huntmaster or an old ghost troll to any degree. Of course, there's nuances and they're different and they're stronger in their different ways, but not so much as the difference between a grizzled huntmaster and a core spirit dancer for the power right. that they bring or creativity. Outside of the concept of mulligan, to get back to the question of why not the two one for one, is quantity decks don't want dead cards. Every card has to, with enough consistency, help you with your game plan. That's when you're looking at the meta, and dead cards in the green world is cards that can't attack into the typical blockers that you're going to see in the meta. And so we run the pups, but the pups help your pack leaders get over. They help your other cards get over. They serve a function to make some of your other cards that we're playing because of that's what's available on the curve. Make sure that they're not dead cards or making them stronger. The two one for one, it's great. I've always wanted one since Pelt Collector left. I feel like the one drop slot in green has been kind of really lackluster. Uh, how um, we've missed the Pelt Collector. Yeah, <laughs> but think about what the difference between the Pelt Collector and the Pack Leader, right? Is that the yeah. Pelt Collector grows turn after turn and can put damage in turn after turn where... The pack leader can be a dead card as early as turn two, and it can stop attacking as early as turn two, where that pelt leader would more consistently grow and be relevant than your pack leader, because your pack leader only procs off of four CMCs, which we're not running very many of. In this deck, I feel like by the time your four drops are hitting the battlefield, you're kind of hoping that the four drops are going to end the game, right? You're not like banking on this one drop that you played a while ago to like yeah. finally turn on and start doing something. You can look at a deck and go, this has eight one-drops, it's aggressive. Okay, yeah. But what's more aggressive, a one-drop or a four-mana 4-4 four, four haster with trample? They're both aggressive cards. One's a four-drops you don't typically think is aggressive, but that's aggressive. Putting a very fast clock on your opponent to be realizing four damage to the face that tramples on turn three or turn four. Actually, this is something I haven't done, but it just came to my brain is as a thought experiment. So say you play a two one-on-one. -on -one. You attack with it on two. That's two damage. You attack with it on three. That's four damage. You attack with it on four. That's six damage. That's assuming three clean attacks with a two-one on turn two, three, and four. Say I play my four-four on four. It more likely gets home because it's a 4-4. Four, four. That's four damage. <laughs> That's already equal to two of your 2-1 attacks. So I feel like in terms of speed... They're almost identical in realized damage to the face. I think that's a really interesting point you raise because I think you're right about raw damage output. What becomes interesting is the question, can a four power aggressive creature be good in this format? Because clearly, for example, we had the option in previous formats to play really, really strong four drop aggressive creatures in the form of Questing Beast. We had some pretty good options. Let's talk about that, right? Because clearly you built this deck saying a deck with six four drop aggressive creatures in the main deck is going to be a successful game plan. Clearly, certain things have to be true about the meta for that to be true, right? Because I feel like in a meta with too much spot removal, in a meta with too much of certain kinds of interaction, you're just going to get roasted for like tapping four mana and having your opponent 
interact with it in an efficient way. What's true about the alchemy format to make these pretty expensive for an aggro deck creatures worth it? What's different about why Questing Beast, and Questing Beast saw a ton of play and a ton of very successful play. It wasn't not played, but there were times when it was not played. In fact, I think that I might be overinflating my own impact here, but I actually leveraged the concept, the heuristic, if you will, that Questing Beast is the most powerful green card in existence at the time and needs to be a four of in every green deck. And when I brought up that Kroki story, that's definitely the first thing he did was he added four Questing Beasts and took out four of something else. But when I first built my green deck, what I called it was three CMC Mono G and it ran zero Questing Beasts. And I think it was the first widely publicized successful mono green deck post Eldraine that didn't run for Questing Beast. And my analysis at that time was that there were enough decks in the meta, both on the control side, on the combo side, and on the aggro side, that used Lovestruck Beast that it became a blanked card, or at least one that traded negatively. Your strongest card in your deck and your four drop trades with the most popular three drop in the meta, you want to be doing something else. Um, so yeah. I made a, a three CMC mono green where literally the only card above three MC that I played was Henge itself and was successful in that way. Now in the Alchemy meta, there is no Lovestruck Beast. So a four mana, four, four rates, it can attack into everything efficiently, even the dragons, right? It at least matches them. So they play a Hellkite. I can play my 4-4 four, four and they're forced to trade or take the damage, but their Hellkite didn't have haste, mine did. Like it has flying, mine has trample, very similar. The difference between this deck and the Dragon's deck is this deck has power earlier in the curve that puts you ahead on the race. They're playing a whelp or nothing on turn two or three. I'm playing like a pup into a pack leader, into an old growth troll into my four drop, which puts me ahead because of the power that I put on the board before I got there. So that's the difference between what Dragons is doing and what we're doing with these four mana four fours. Well, and I imagine in the head-to-head, like Blizzard Brawl is just a total breaker, right? Because oh, yeah. they it's have the nothing nuts. that can compare to the efficiency of that card. It, yeah. It's the nuts. Like Snakeskin Veil is actually like a really Ooh, clean yep. trick because our creatures are typically identically statted. Just get putting one more on is enough. To, to be massive, and it yeah. also blanks their removal and their interaction. That's actually one of the strengths of this deck is how well it matches up against the alchemy dragon lists. That was the first thing that came to my mind when I looked at this deck. I was like, man, I feel like Rumty is playing like mono green dragons. You have all of these like hasty, expensive, hard hitting creatures. Yeah, your early game is different, but I feel like your kind of turn three to five or six, I feel like probably plays out fairly similarly in terms of like how you're resolving your threats and the kind of things that you're factoring in thinking about do you think tenacious pop is just a better one drop in mono green or did you specifically select it for this deck for certain reasons this deck evolved and i experimented a lot tenacious pup's weakness is that it's on cast not on resolve right the the trample yeah and so divide by zero Jawari's Disruption, um, all of these cards that stop the creature from resolving to the board, it consumes yep. the trigger of your pack leader, and that feels really bad. It was happening often enough 
that I actually switched to a version with no one-drop creatures at all. I plugged in like an extra snakeskin veil, a couple inscription of abundances to have more interaction and more combat tricks. Just added like a sculptor of winter to make my plan of getting to four drops on three more consistent. And I actually kind of like that version more than the pup version. The pup version is better against like gruel werewolves, against dragons even, because those stats matter and they resolve and they're likely to be relevant. And then not just is it, but also all of the key to the archive decks. Pup is really bad. Mm. So I yep. ended up dropping pup. I know that a lot of the very successful mono green decks outside of my list are running for pups and being successful with it. These are just things to think about. And I haven't played enough alchemy. I have to play like 500 games to be able to say with any sort of authority that this is the list you should be playing and not this other list. If I don't have that amount of games, what I can say is this is a really good list with these drawbacks. This is another really good list with these different drawbacks. Pick your poison. I don't know which one's correct. They're both strong. They're both weak in, in different ways. Who knows which one's actually better? One of the reasons I was asking about Pup is it just seems like such a swingy card to me, right? In this list, I feel like a curve of Pup into Sculptor of Winter sounds super strong to me because Sculptor gets to crack in and then tap for mana, right? Yeah. And like, and having a two mana three three is like what this deck is about. So that seems like an insane little curve there. But then like Pup into Ranger class is meh, you know, your three drop still gets the buff yes right yes. so it's not entirely wasted but i feel like having the buff hit your two drop it's got to be better right not always there's okay. a lot of times in a lot of matchups where i will purposefully play my rangers class instead of say a pack leader or a sculptor because i want that buff to go on my mammoth or my troll or my hunt master um, because it's just going to be more relevant to have a 5-5 five, five or a 6-6 six, six cracking in with trample i suppose that allows you to play around like dragon's fire for example right Exactly. If they have interaction that's likely to deal with the two mana three three, or but they don't have anything at all in their deck that can deal with a five five, I want to make my three drop a five five. I feel like pup and ranger class have such an interesting tension because I also feel like the only card in the deck likely to make your pup relevant after its trigger goes off is ranger class right is being able to attack and turn it into a two three it's like such a better yeah. creature than a one two i almost imagine like you can't play a four pop list without playing a list with some grizzled hunt masters in it too right grizzled hunt master makes it better for yeah. sure and you don't need because effectively a card is a card that's something like psychologically i had to get over like sometimes like man i don't want to bin an old gross troll with my hunt master just to pull out like an uvenwald oddity or something no i want to hold on to this grizzled master so i can bin a pup or a sculptor or something that's objectively worse than what yeah. i'm bringing out of the board but in reality they're identical choices i'm getting rid of something it doesn't matter what I'm getting rid of. I'm getting rid of it. <laughs> yep. Yep. <laughs> right? It's gone. It's not part of the equation. It's almost yeah. like the concept of what you would have drawn off your top deck, right? It doesn't totally. matter. The cards that got milled, they're yeah, just like they, any other cards in your deck that would have gotten milled, right? It doesn't exist. But at the same time, it does feel good in the late game when you're able to bin a pup and turn it into an oddity and what i was just talking about is the concept of don't let yourself fall into the trap of being greedy for that interaction mm. if an oddity is going to be better than your ogle troll because of the game state 
use your hunt master to get rid of your old gross troll to get an oddity for your next turn because yeah. the haste is relevant i struggled with that when i first was toying with hunt master never wanted to do that and sometimes you'll run into situations where like i'll turn a lupine harbinger in my hand or an oddity in my hand into an oddity from my sideboard because i want my opponent to think that i have access to a wider array of I options. See. Mind games. You know, yeah. It's like, okay, yeah. I bend my oddity. They're like, God, if they bend their oddity, they probably yeah, they brought must out be a caretaker a or a flex or something. Yeah. Yeah. And so they're <laughs> like, so now I have to hold this answer because yeah. I know of Clex is coming because they bend an oddity. Nice. But if I turn an oddity into an oddity <laughs> Got him. Yeah. Oh, I love it, man. That's so great. Even just something like, I love how like if your opponent looks at your hand and then you resolve a hunt master, now all of a sudden they don't know your hand anymore. One of the things that stoked me the most in looking at your sideboard here, I'm going to read off the options you have to grab from your sideboard. Some of them seem pretty obvious, like Outland Liberator, nice cheap answer to artifacts and enchantments, Sawblade Slinger, which is like a power draft card that seems pretty good actually in like for taking out a key, right? Right? You yep. kill a key, you get a four power creature. That sounds pretty good. Oddity, like you were saying, is kind of your mainstay pick. You got Frog Hemoth, obviously. It's a good Vorinclex, Averbrook Caretaker, Hollowhenge Wrangler. But the card, which for me was next level, was Tangled Florahedron. Sometimes I just need to make my fourth land drop. And I'm going to shout out Came Dark. I think you know who Came Dark yep. is. I, I got a kick out of it. I was in uh, Jaffer's stream and I'd type something in chat and then and then Came Dark typed something in chat shortly after and somebody else said, oh, look, it's Rumpty and Brazilian Rumpty. I love that. <laughs> that was so perfect because he is like, Game Dark was one of my uh, early viewers. He's been awesome. one of my most consistent viewers and he's kind of an acolyte and took up a lot of my philosophies and has done really well he's gotten rank one himself building his own decks not just taking mine and playing them came dark is the one that convinced me that flora he belongs in the side we actually argued over it a lot i will cede to his wisdom he was right and i was wrong and that's exactly it sometimes you just need that fourth land drop you've probably heard me say this concept a few times and this is different than tournament magic you've heard me talk about winning you a percentage of games and when i'm making a decision i know that if i'm gonna grind to rank one on the ladder or if i'm gonna grind to the top 10 on the ladder i want to have a good ladder result i'm gonna need to play 200 games this month when i'm looking at a card decision what's my best guess considering all available data that tangled florahedron is going to win me x amount of games that i would have otherwise lost versus whatever card I'm going to replace it with, right? Yeah, there were stronger cards I wanted to put in, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I realized, and Came Dark was right, I had to admit that hitting that fourth land drop when I really, really need to is going to win me more games over the course of 200 games than not having that option available and just having another thing that does similar stuff to Frog Hemoth Oddity you know totally. what have you i want to be clever and be like oh sometimes instead of a caretaker i want a tolvar that's a card that i really wanted in there they're similar enough that they're winning the same games in the same way even though they're different and there's times i would want a tolvar and not a caretaker because i want the, the two two twos i want the, the fight effect when it flips tonight or what have you you know whatever the reason may be you could think of these edge cases where yeah i want a caretaker and a tolvar on my sideboard but no really i want that fourth land drop it's going to represent 
more wins over the course of 100 games. Yeah, I fully believe that. And I mean, one of my realizations, it actually took me out of playing Mono Green for a while because I got so frustrated with it. This was before DFCs, by the way. We are fortunate to live in a time of DFCs. But when I was playing Mono Green before these DFC creatures were invented, my realization with the deck was that when we curve out, like when we hit our land drops, we are favored to win in a lot of matchups because our creatures are just really good and if as long as we can play them on curve we're in a really good spot if we don't play our creatures on curve we often die on the spot i mean it's not always but i feel like the difference between like being able to slam your four drop on turn four versus not being able to do that is just so big right or like whatever your kind of like key turn of the game is or whatever your key creature type is like if you're not able to do that on curve it gets so much worse we don't have that many catch-up mechanisms we don't have that many excellent ways to interact with our opponent if we're getting slowed down in any way at all it hurts us so much more than it might hurt a number of other decks in the format when people talk to me about like building a mono green deck without Kazandu Mammoth, I don't understand it. Personally, that's just my bias. I mean, especially in this deck, you've got six four drops. You need to hit those land drops. Otherwise, you're just not doing your plan. All of those things that you said, I agree with. Another thing that green doesn't have access to is card selection. We are weak to flood and screw. So what green's doing, it's playing overstatted minions at every point on the curve. And as you pointed out, if you're able to do that by having the right mix of creatures and the right mix of lands to allow you to play them out on time, you're ahead because you're playing the best minions at every point of the curve. A sacrifice of that is we don't get to play a card like Expressive Iteration. We don't get to play a card like, uh, I don't know, I'm blanking on other card selection cards because yeah. Expressive Iteration is it. Yeah. Uh, but like, I don't know, like Divide like, by Zero or divide by zero, Expressive exactly. Windfall, these things yep. that let you draw a bunch of cards and bend the ones that don't matter to you at that moment. We don't often get to leave up a removal spell if we can't play our creature, right? Like, it's yeah. that kind of stuff too. Yeah. yeah, exactly. We don't have alternative options. So yeah, Flood and Screw are what you're trying to minimize. And yeah, as you pointed out, the dual lands... I'm so thankful for Mammoth that it existed. Because there were other dual man lands, but they didn't rate. Yeah. Yeah, like Florahedron made its way into a lot of different lists, but Florahedron okay. is fine. It's okay. There's better things. Anything that you can do to mitigate the flood or the screw and not lose power that's the choice you want to make i think it's really interesting that you are a two ranger class deck because that's so often a card that mono green leans to to some degree mitigate that problem ranger class is like one of the few card advantage engines that mono green actually has access to so i'd be interested to hear like is it just you couldn't fit them in the list or what was the decision there yeah i would love to run more but it's kind of a tight list and i don't think that running more would necessarily be incorrect. I had a reason, because I started with four and I trimmed them down. Part of it is fading hope. It's weak to fading hope. Part of it is that the way the meta shakes down, leveling it up, it almost never happens. So, and it goes back to the concept of the percentage of games. What percentage of games are you actually winning because you took a Rangers class to level three and so, started playing creatures off the top of your deck? When yeah. you do it, it feels great. But what? It's going to win you like two games that you would have otherwise lost out of 100 games. It's just not going to happen. And the other thing, I think I kept getting punished by leveling it up to three just to have it like divided or something. There's a lot of ways. <laughs> I kept getting punished every time I took it to level three. And I was just like, you know what? It's a great card and four still might be correct, 
but I felt like I, I wanted my sculptors. I wanted my pack leaders more. What card are you taking out to fit them in? Looking at the list and, right. and understanding its game plan. And another thing is that Grizzled Hunt Master is giving you that card advantage in a way. I mean, it's not necessarily yeah. card advantage, but it's definitely upgrading things for you. You're right to identify it as quasi-card advantage. It's trying, in an ideal world, taking an irrelevant card and turning it into your most relevant possible card i almost feel like that's a straight up that's worth a card well even no, though it doesn't strictly give no, you no you're right because i mean that's one of the issues that aggro decks can run into is that you draw a creature and it's just not the creature that's going to win you the game like you draw that kazandu mammoth off the top of your deck and you're just like yeah it's not what i need right and that's where like the thinning part of the hot master is super relevant to be like yeah. i want to draw my sculptors on two i want to have them in my opening hand or yeah. by turn two i don't want another one ever again after so the fact that in a game where I no longer need those sculptors. I get to bin the rest of them out of my library, so I never mm. draw them. That's fantastic. Even mammoths. I often bin all of my mammoths out of my library with my Huntmaster because I would rather be drawing a Harbinger, an Oddity, a Troll, or Pack Leader, like, you know, a lot of different things. As long as I got my lands, yeah. Mammoth is kind of a lackluster body when I am at the state of the game where I'm not likely to be able to turn it into attacking 5-5. Five, five. So I bin them. I thin my library from those suboptimal cards, and that's great. So what you've effectively done is you've found other ways to generate this virtual card advantage, yeah. which negate the need to have some of this late yeah. game Yeah, I mean, stuff. it's not it's not perfect, but it helps. And that's all right. green needs. I do just love that X factor, like you were saying. You know, I love that someone, like, maybe even if you were playing in a tournament, someone would be like, oh... I see that Vorinclex in his sideboard. So now I have to respect it. I need to respect that caretaker. I need to respect, you know, all of this different stuff. And it's going to make him think twice. I'm sure there are even matchups where, like, you've maybe preemptively fetched one of these artifact answering creatures before your opponents even played the key because yes. you just, you're anticipating it. You want to be careful with that because... If they never end up playing it, our deck is such that we have to play our creatures. If it gets to turn five or turn six and they haven't displayed their key yet, my Sawblade Slinger is going to hit the board if I tutored for it, regardless. Because I can't just not pressure my opponent. Say they've sweeped me or they've removed all of my creatures and I have like a land and a Slinger in hand and they haven't played a key yet. I have to play that slinger and then i yeah. really wish it was an oddity and that's yeah. going to happen often going back to last week what chris patella talked about conceptualizing every turn and every plan what's the worst thing that can happen and the da, 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 da. that's a decision where being skilled at that is really important and your hand is going to inform that decision not your opponent's hand because you can't see your opponent's hand oh i'll go into this because this will be the same concept is lupine harbingers right I'm running four of those and only two oddities. I, I was going to ask you about that, so take us yeah. into that. It goes back to the percentage of games. It is seven mana to flip an oddity. We're a 23 land deck with four mammoths. Flipping an oddity is flashy. It's cool. It's amazing. Doing it into open mana is impossible because you spend seven mana to get your oddity fading hoped. It's such a hard interaction to utilize in a way that actually impacts the game. Lupine Harbinger, there's lots of times where on turn two or three or later in the game, you might be foretelling it. Because, like, say, for instance, I'm looking at, at my hand, right? And say I have, like, two oddities and a Harbinger, three lands. And this is by, like, on turn two when I'm making that decision. I have something to do on turn three. 
I'm looking at this game state and going, I have something to do on turn three. I have two things to do on turn four, two different things. So that's my turn four and my turn five. I know I'm drawing other cards. I can foretell this Harbingers and let it start growing at no cost to myself because I know I'm going to have other things to do with that mana all the way up into the point where I, this Harbinger is now an 8-8 Haster. You're you know? building yourself a curve is what you're doing. And I have the information in the agency to say, no, I need this to still be four mana, so I'm not going to foretell it even if I don't use my mana at all because the shape of my hand is such that I know I need to play it on four. Mm. But if the shape of my hand is such that I know I don't need to play it on four or on five or probably even on six, I'll foretell it and make it so much more strong. (laughs) I really like the way Harbingers plays out in a lot of these games. I feel like it adds more flexibility than Oddity does. If you're going to slam it as a four draw, you'd prefer to have the oddity, right? Because it gives you yes. this extra potential. Yes. But what you're saying is that I would rather have the versatility of being able to put my mana into this Lupine Harbinger in a different way and have it be something better when it actually comes down. And another thing is that four drops, they don't double spell well. Basically, you're never going to have a turn in this deck where you get to slam two four drops in the same turn. Exactly. But you might have a turn when your opponent like killed your old growth troll the last turn. Now you, you know, you're going into a turn with six mana. Yes. You get to slam a four drop now and foretell one for the next turn. That's a much yes. stronger sequence. You pointed that out too of the play pattern. Is sometimes you're going to foretell it late because you get that extra two mana and depending on what your opponent's options are to deal with what you have and how important it is to have that five five more importantly maybe you're going to play a hunt master or an old girl troll at five and you play that and foretell your harbinger because you're at five or you, and you know you'll be at six next turn and now your four four is a five five even if you cast it just the very next turn and sometimes that's super relevant let's mention the mono blacklist right which are everywhere you can start your harbinger cooking on two and just be like okay i'm ignoring it and i'm not going to play it until it's a 12 12 because these games can go long and as long as i have other things to do those miracle games where you what green always wants to do is draw four lands and no more in those games you don't care that you have a lupine foretold because you've only drawn four lands in all action so That action lets you keep going. And then all of a sudden, okay, you draw your fifth land. Okay, that's still action. I draw my sixth land. My Harbinger's all of a sudden a 10-10. It gets to get home and close that game. The amount of pressure it puts on your opponent is fantastic and the psychological pressure. One thing I'll do is if I queue up against streamers, sometimes I'll go search for the VOD later so I can see what they were saying while we were playing. There's been a couple of times where I queued up against streamers who I won't name, and later going to watch the VODs, the number of times that they, with kind of like despair in their voice, went, that's an oddity coming, and it's what? What is it now? It's a 9? It's a 10? <laughs> they sense the doom hanging over their head. <laughs> it's like Auron's Epiphany in a control matchup or something, right? Yeah. Where it's like you know your opponent... Your opponent is just staring at it and they're like, I have to respect that for the rest of the game. And if I sequence it all poorly against it, it's going to eat me. 
I especially love it in a meta like this, which I mean, you know, I'm sure that you're anticipating a fair amount of like meat hook massacres. I'm sure you're anticipating mm -hmm. a fair amount of like doom scars. I imagine it's pretty threatening against any of these like Azorius key to the archive lists. A lot of those decks are probably playing no creatures. I mean, maybe they have a Kraken or something, right? But like, but basically they're going to be incentivized to sweep your board at some earlier point in the game. You can play into that and play around with that and just kind of stack up this extra threat to slam the turn after you force them to sweep you. And I can't stress enough the difference between six mana and seven mana in an aggro deck is massive. Anyone who's tried to build an Ugin deck <laughs> recognizes the rarity increase of each piece of mana past oh. the first four. I wish I had the numbers like off the top of my head, but the number of games that you'll get to like six mana by turn X and seven mana by turn Y, that gap has got to be big. Each successive land drop is going to take you like more turns relatively to get to it. Exactly. If the average difference between six and seven is two or three turns, which yep. actually kind of makes sense if you think about the mixture of lands, you, you got 24, it's a third of your deck. I'm casting Harbingers for six, typically three turns earlier than I'm flipping an oddity for seven you're getting whatever size of creature that was for six total mana. Whereas with the oddity to play it and then flip it, you're spending 11 mana, which yes. is a lot of fricking mana, especially for an aggro yes. deck to spend. Exactly. So it really is kind of Christmas land that you're actually going to flip it and that that's going to matter. It reminds me of like leveling up your ranger class all the way, right? Exactly. It's going to matter in some small percentage of games. Yeah. If you go and look at all those lists, they're all running four oddities and two harbingers if they're running this mixture at all. I don't get it. After playing against Harbinger, I have come to respect the power of that card. Plus, it's just sweet how like sometimes like your control opponent will leave up removal and you'll just foretell and like you'll totally get him. People will yeah. like waste mana. Yep. Foretelling is a strong mechanic. And it like dodges hand hate. Like that's yeah. relevant a lot of times too. There is some of that out there. Those black decks are playing that alchemy discard card sometimes right i've gotten gotten by that a little bit not that it that they bring it in for green out of the side but sometimes you'll see like go blanks in the yep. meta yeah like if someone's really worried about that control matchup they'll just main deck yep. it what i love about this discussion is that i think it's really easy to look at a list like this and to just be like oh yeah whatever like that's some two drops and some three drops and some four drops and it's a smashy green deck whatever right but it's really clear that there's a lot of interactions that you're thinking about when you're building this deck you joke about being a drooly like aggro player or whatever there is a lot of brain cells flying in formation to put one of these decks together right a deck that's going to have a high enough win rate to be in the top 10, which is typically at least 75% win rate to be in the top 10, lower than 75% win rate will tread you water in the top 50. To break in, you have to have a higher win rate. And to, in order to have that level of win rate, yeah, every card needs to have a purpose. Yeah, you, you have to put that level of thought into all 60 cards in your main and all 15 cards in your side because every game matters. When you have to win 8 out of 10 games in order to climb or make any progress whatsoever. Let me tell you my beats in Historic is that I climbed to rank 2. I had a 93% win rate over 9 hours. I, I forget what the actual ratio of games was. I think I was something like 
36 and 5 or 36 and 4 or something like that. Ridiculous, right? That climbed me from rank 17 to rank 2. Nine hours of play at a 90 plus percent win rate. 15 spots. (laughs) Play the next day before work after only sleeping like three hours. So I'm super tired. I'm super stressed out because of some work stuff. I'm not in the right headspace, and I knew I wasn't in the right headspace. But my thought was, I've won seven games on two. If I just win one or two more games, I'm going to get that number one, which was my goal for the deck, because I wanted to say, hey, I took this deck to number one with Historic. It's a big thing to be able to say. I lost three games in a row. Rank 14. Brutal. It undid Nine hours of work. (laughs) Yeah. Not just nine hours of work. But nine hours of very difficult to replicate work. Yeah. I had an incredible day to yeah. have a 90% win rate over nine hours of play. It made me give up my desire to be number one again this month. Nobody's a 90% win rate gamer over a large enough subset of games. The fact that I was able to pull it together was the kind of the hot streak, the the run hot that you need to do in order to consider making that run at all. And now I'm sitting in a position where like, do I actually have like the mental energy? If I'm going to get to rank one from rank 17 with an 80% win rate, that's probably 30 hours of play, not just 10. It's a factorial like that. It grows exponentially. It's yeah. like making your land drops. It gets yeah, that it, much harder to yeah, do. It's that much harder. If you think about it, I lost three games. It wiped out that whole thing. It's so hard. And that's why, and I talked about it over and over again, it's that win percentage is everything because the win percentage determines your grind time and your grind time determines whether it's possible to achieve that goal or not. That's what it boils down to. And if you have a card that makes you fall from a 78% win rate deck to a 75% win rate deck, that's capping your peak. That's just a function of the way the ladder works. And that's it. If your goal is to be in the top 10 or be rank one on the ladder, that's the level of tuning you need to do. It doesn't really bother me because I understand it, but a lot of streamers or a lot of people are too cool for school. And they try to say, oh, I'm not really trying. And a lot of them really aren't trying, right? Because of the nature of it. But everybody wants to be rank one. These streamers are playing enough games. They're playing 200, 300, 400 games a month. But they're not being sweaty. No, I'm sweaty, dude. I really want to do it. And when I fail to do it, it's because I failed to do it, not because I didn't care and didn't want to. I'll admit that. And there have been several months where I played enough games to get rank one, and I tried really hard to do that, and I failed because it's a hard thing to do. (laughs) I'm not ashamed to admit that. Also, in a way, you become a victim of your own success. Well, you know, Rumty's always number one, so I feel like that's compounding pressure on you to keep that streak up. It does put that pressure. I try to be honest with my goals, and I try to be honest with, like, it's a hard thing to achieve. And sometimes I am unable to understand the meta. Mm. I'm unable to understand the workings of my deck, or I make decisions or assumptions that end up being false in hindsight, and I fail to succeed for that month. And it wasn't because I was not trying. I really, really was, you know? (laughs) How about this, Rumty? Does it ever cross your mind that Mono Green is just not good enough to make number one that month? There have been a couple of months where I am convinced Mono Green wasn't in a good enough position to make number one on the ladder. Since I've been playing Mono Green, it has 
always been good enough to be top 10. Number one is a whole different animal than mm. top 10. And top 10 is a whole different animal than top anything else. There just seems to be a bubble there. And I think it has to do with the behavior of players on the ladder. And top 10 is a big goal. And mm-hmm. so the ELO bubbles and gaps start existing where you might have to win like five games in a row to go from 11 to 10. You'll move a lot between like 15 and 25 or 30 um, because you're not really close to some sort of like benchmark goal that people are going to strive for to stay into. Mm-hmm. One is a similar thing. The person who gets number one, if they want to hold it, sometimes they will drive way far ahead of the pack and then camp and then that gap between two and one is so large that you have to go on a ridiculous win streak in order to close that gap sometimes green isn't capable of that kind of a win streak because the meta is so hostile to it rule of large numbers what i'm saying isn't strictly true in a theoretical sense because if i played 10 million games I would be able to find a 200-game stretch in those 10 million games that achieved rank one. But in practical terms, (laughs) as a human with limited time and that needs to sleep, eat, and use the restroom, Mono Green can't achieve the win rate that makes it probable to achieve. And there's also just that psychological warfare of sitting at number two forever i imagine like that gets crushing after a while queuing games at rank two is the most stressful thing to do in magic outside of high level tournament play one of my favorite moments in time was the may season where i was rank one and i had went on a heater of all heaters mono green was well positioned and i also got extremely lucky there was two instances in the same month the two people trying to chase me down with in earnest was ginky and yellow hat i mean that's some competition both excellent players and i played more volume than they did so that was my edge if i looked at it or you parsed it we probably all had similar win rates perhaps i would guess Mm. I was so far ahead that I, I would watch Ginky's stream and I made a custom emo and Ginky has like a, a rank one emo and I made a rank two emo. Oh, what a troll. <laughs> <laughs> at, at one point, like, I think he won 13 games in a row at rank two uh. without seeing rank one. And every game I'd just be like, spam that rank two emo. <laughs> just salting him. <laughs> Ginky and yeah. I interact a lot. I consider him one of my bigger parasocial relationships. Mm. (laughs) The Yellow Hat story in the same month is he was in a similar boat, and I was at work watching him stream to try to chase me down, and he was winning, and I was sweating. I was like, he's got to be getting close. I have no idea, but geez. And I'm in his chat, just talking, just some banter. I wasn't really talking shit because I don't have the kind of relationship with Yellow Hat that I do with Ginky, so I didn't want to be like a total troll about it his chat started trolling me like really hard and some like really aggressively where i was just like i don't know if they're trolling me or if they really believe what they're saying about me so i got home and yellow hat was rolling with it too all in good fun no bad feelings from anything i was enjoying it i think everybody involved was enjoying what was happening but yellow hat was like yeah play me you kind of like cue into me i don't care da, 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 da. so i get home from work and i get a stream up and i queue snipe him not watching him play he's ranked two i'm rank one if we queue at the same time we're yeah, gonna match gonna, each other right yeah so like i just make sure i queue at the same time close the stream play and so it's rank one versus rank two I think he had like a thousand, twelve hundred viewers or something like that. I just like put it on the line. And uh, full disclosure, 
I can say I had the confidence to do it because I knew my matchup was really good <laughs> against what he was playing. I, he was playing Is It, and at that time, my untapped reflected that in the month of May and June, I went seventy-six and one against Is It. That's how dominating mono green was in that matchup because that was before the current version of is it existed that's in a previous set i always joke like my favorite card in magic at that time was like frostbound snarl whenever i saw an is it land i was like the freest (laughs) win i've ever experienced in magic they had no way whatsoever to deal with our creatures and they weren't even close to as fast as us so it was just free and yeah so like i ended up winning that you got to show those haters yeah all of that started because i talked about how stressful it is to play at rank two because a loss is devastating it's the difference between getting it and not you just lose so much ground you have to win four games in a row to make up for a loss if you're in a position where you need to win 13 in a row or more to get there you have to win four games in a row just to get back to being 13 games down. Who would continue like under yeah. those odds? I mean, it's <laughs> so brutal. Yeah, Magic nerds, man. We're gluttons for it. I think if that proves anything, I think it just it proves the resolve of what it takes to be the gladiator known as Romti. And I think that that's where we're going to have to leave it for tonight. <laughs> we're both up past our bedtimes, probably. Jeez, and, yeah. Uh, Gosh, you're going to probably have to cut this down. <laughs> you know, it's not often that we get ranked number one for, what, 13 <laughs> months, 14 months in a row on the show. So hey, I def- CGB put up his number ones. Yeah, you're sitting in good <laughs> shoes here. Romti, as we're heading out of here, where can people find you on the internet? Rumpty at twitch.tv and Rumpty5 on Twitter. Okay. Um, those are the two best places to find me. I've been pretty heavy with on Twitter activity. My, my streaming is on hiatus, like we covered last week. I post all of my deck lists. I post my results. The kind of information that I'm sharing here, sometimes you'll find me sharing those kind of nuggets uh, on Twitter as well. And I interact. If you have questions, I answer them. Like I pride myself on that. I'll post a deck list and someone will be like, oh, but did you think about this card? Did you think about this card? Why are you doing that or whatever? And I try to answer them and respect everybody's coming to the table, all those inquiries. I really enjoy that. So, yeah. You know, one thing I can say is that, like, if Rumty posts a deck list and puts his oomph behind it, it's going to be a solid list. And it's a good place to start with any of your, your green brewing. Definitely follow Rumty class act there. So thanks for joining us today and happy to report that unless something big changes we will have cgb back on the show next week wanted to thank you rumty and all of our other gracious guests and co-hosts who have filled those big big shoes in his absence so really looking forward to having him back on the show and you know you can find us on kovac blues youtube channel if you want to watch the video version of this podcast we're also on spotify and pretty much any you know regular podcast download location that you might look if you want to listen to the audio version of the show we have a patreon and we definitely appreciate all of the support like i said big shout out to jeremy bach again for winning that commander deck this time and hopefully we'll have more of that going on in the future and until next time stay strong be courageous go out there and crush have a good night rumty you too thank you arjun